Perhaps I'd better introduce myself since you, most of you know who I am. I'm an ancient fixture of this place, Merritt John Peel, former professor of anthropology uh, in the department here. And it's my great pleasure to introduce today as our speaker, Dr. G.B. Ololajulok, um, who is a lecturer in the Department of Archaeology and Anthropology at the University of Ibadan, where he did his PhD. Um, He's, well, all Yorubas are special, but he's a very special Yoruba because he comes from uh, a remote, the, the remotest southeastern corner of Yoruba land, uh, Ilaje, uh, on the coast, um, and uh, a, a very um, understudied part of Yoruba land, though it, it was the scene of, of, a, of a well-known study of a utopian religious community called the Community of the Apostles about a generation ago. That's how it's mostly known in the literature. Um, but he's going to speak to us. Uh, the subject of his PhD was on uh, rural change and the impact of, of development intervention in Elaje. And it's a great pleasure that I invite him to speak to us today. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, let me just start. Um, we appreciate um the Center of African Studies, um, School of Oriental African Studies, University of London, for this platform that has been offered me, at least um, to present um, my research and then um, hope to receive a lot of uh, feedback from um, the audience that I have before me today. And from the kind of faces I see before me, I'm, I have no doubt that I'm going to actually benefit from uh, the kind of comments that will be offered them. Um, today. Uh, let me start um, by saying the work I'm going to present, just like um, Professor Peel said, um, is um, something like a work that has been completed, although we have this um, tradition in academics that no work is ever completed because you continue to rework and rework as you have new facts and um, you have new feedbacks on your work, you continue to revise it. So I don't want to see it as a finished product because I'm on the view that after this meeting, I'm going to receive a lot of insight that will assist me to further this work. And um, the intention of this presentation is also to get enough feedback that is going to help in the process of revising um, my PhD work into a book. So I'm not going to take the chance of just rolling out something to the public in the name of a book, and um, this particular audience um, proved very, very uh, uh, insightful in that regard. Uh, I will start with the outline of this presentation. Yes, it's going to give a very big background uh, to intervention agencies and project implementation processes. I'm going to look at the aspect of physical infrastructure development in the area that I'm going to deal with. and. I will move from there to what we call um, the contestation and the negotiation of um, development intervention. Then um, I will move to the kind of emerging culture that I see as a kind of uh, outcome of the implementation of development intervention, and I will follow at the conclusion. This is just a brief rundown of the voting. I'm not going to spend them. Um, my time looking at um, some of this. Let's go straight back to a kind of background to this study. 
I'm working on an area that um, has received a lot of um, attention from scholars in the last two decades in Nigeria. There's no doubt that when we say uh, we want to look at the map of the study conducted in Nigeria in the last two decades, the Niger Delta area of Nigeria, I think, take a large chunk of attention. But what we can see from the literature of the Niger Delta is that there is a kind of preoccupation on um, whether environmental degradation, the resource um, politics in the region, we look at the conflicts in the region engendered by the kind of um, struggle over claims to oil, then we look at the aspect of um, uh, uh, the, the kind of struggle between the state and the local people over ownership of oil. So in essence, we have a literature on oil exploitation in the Niger Delta area that focuses on what we can see as a kind of um, victimization of the local people by the state through the instrumentality of oil exploitation. If I'm going to work on this, I think definitely uh, there's just no way we escape what we call the rehash of literature. So much has been published. So in essence, my work is not on any of this. Where am I going to? Moving away from this kind of literature that I see as already well established, I choose to look at what we can see as an area of um, government activities in the Niger Delta area that is not explored, and that is the aspect of development intervention. It's going to be wrong for all of us to assume that um, ever since um, 1958, when um, oil was discovered in Oloibiri in large quantity, till date, that the state has not done anything in times of um, problem uh, assuaging the kind of pains we have that come with oil exploitation. And the kind of process is what we refer to as um, the development intervention. So in looking at the implementation of development intervention, there are certain questions that are very basic and fundamental to this discourse. For instance, we need to look at how the state agencies that were established to implement intervention, how they describe their activities in the oil producing uh, communities. We need to look at how uh, the state-led intervention is interpreted by the local communities. And we need to look at how the claims of the local people to intervention projects how it interferes with the kind of politics, the kind of politics that existed among the local people prior to the process of um, development intervention. In essence, I'm trying to see how the kind of existing uh, local politics, how it interferes with um, the implementation of development intervention. And then finally, we also look, have to look at the intended and the unintended outcomes of the implementation of development intervention. And um, as a kind of, um, uh, let me say, reflection on this aspect of uh, intended and unintended, I can proudly say that um, in the process of 
probably discussing this work with um, uh, some of the very senior scholars um, in this center. I actually got um, that inspiration about what I call unintended, whether truly the unintended outcomes were unintended or whether they are actually built into the aspect of intervention. We're going to look at this. An aspect of this work which I'm going to submit to this um, noble gathering for a very good discussion is the aspect of the framework that is considered appropriate for this study. Uh, in the process of doing this work, I got a bit confused, I must confess, about what focus or what type of literature that I'm going to situate in this work. Remember I said that we're going to look at how government agencies describe what they are doing in the oil region. So I got confused. In the process of doing my PhD, this is, it was very easy for me to say it was rural development. But in recent time after reflecting the work again, I questioned myself, can I call what the government agencies are doing the, uh, rural development? The literature on rural development is very, very explicit on what constitutes rural development. The aspect of people's participation in the process is very clear in terms of rural development. But in the case of intervention, we have a process whereby the state agencies are implementing projects that they consider as equating development. So the confusion stands, and you're going to bail me out. I look at the aspect of community development, something very close to rural development, a paradigm that also surfaced in um, or popularized in the 60s and the 70s, also around the same time as rural development. It does not appear to fit into what the agencies were doing. Ditto integrated rural development. Then there was an insight, and that insight was provided by the former president of Nigeria, Olusegun Obasanjo, during the launch of what they call the master plan for the development of the oil region. He described the activities of the intervention agencies as what accelerated development. And I tried to see whether I could theorize accelerated development and develop it with a kind of um, framework that fit into what the state agencies were doing. This is still a kind of experiment. But for now, I have settled, or I have just settled on Norman Long's uh, approach of what they call the actor-oriented uh, approach and to development. And the reason why I found this one very suitable for now is because I'm looking at um, a kind of um, interface between the local people and then um, the intervention agencies. I'm trying to look at the different discourses that were generated, that were propounded, that were formulated by the two sides, the different actors, so to say. We call them the stakeholders in development intervention. What are the different discourses they bring to the table, and how do this reflect in the way development is conceptualized? So that's what I'm basing on for now. This work, um, focused on three intervention agencies. But of the three, one is no longer uh, in existence because 
is the first initiative, and that is what they call uh, the Oil Mineral Producing Areas Development Commission. This was a commission established in 1993 by the military government of um, General Ibrahim Latangida. And then uh, I think um, the sum of 3% of oil, proceeds from oil was set aside for this agency to use to implement development in areas that are producing oil. That was the scenario until 1999 when um, the civilian regime of um, Olusegun was inaugurated. With the inauguration of Olusegun Obasanjo in 1999, Ompadek was abrogated and then it was replaced with the Niger Delta Development Commission. The NDDC came up with a better deal because at that point in time, the a kind of revenue that was allocated to the commission rose from mere 3% to 13% of um, the oil derivation. So NDDC had a kind, apart from other commitment from the oil multinationals, from the state itself, it had a huge sum of amount that was administering for the development of the oil areas. This is a national initiative. At the level of the area I'm going to discuss, I'm coming to it now, we have the Ondo State Oil Producing Area Development Commission, also established at the level of the region as a kind of replication of the national initiative. And this was uh, somehow uh, necessitated by the fact that in the whole of Ondo State, we have just one local government area that is adjudged as oil producing. So if Ondo State was receiving oil revenue from the state by virtue of one local government producing oil, it sounds appropriate that a commission also be set aside by the state government to focus on that specific area. And that was why the Osopadek was also established as a kind of replication of the national initiative which happened to be NDDC. Now we've looked at these agencies. What do they do? What are those things they describe as development activities? From the point they were established to date, we have two categories of projects we call the physical infrastructure project, and we also have what they call the human development uh, project. The physical infrastructure projects include projects like roads, building of jetties. We also have um, building construction of school buildings. We have health centers, um, foot bridges, among other physical infrastructure projects, and then. In the aspect of human development, there were skill acquisition programs that were set off by some of these agencies to provide a sort of what we call alternative livelihood for people that have lost their means of livelihood as a result of um, the devastating effect of oil and exploitation. So we have the physical infrastructure projects, we have the human development and pro and projects. This is a brief a background on what agencies are doing. Quickly to the area 
we're going to discuss. Like the chairman of this program uh, rightly introduced, the emphasis on this, pro this particular project is on the Ilaje area of Ondo State, Nigeria. The Ilaje people are a subgroup of the Yoruba, the Yoruba-speaking group. They occupy the southwestern part of Nigeria. This is a map of the southwestern part of Nigeria. And then the area we are discussing is this area that is referred to as Mahi on this map. This is where the intervention process that we're talking about is taking a place. Let me go back to this. So the Elijah people generally are thought to be homogeneous. That is just a single subgroup of the Yoruba. But within this subgroup, there is also the tendency to now break the subgroup into at least four minor subgroups, we call the sub-subgroups. We have the Mahi, the Ubo, the Aheri, and the Tika. Three of the four subgroups actually have something um, in, in common in terms of um, the uh, account of migration, or how they got to that place. So that one was a kind of bond for three of them. So in which case, we now have two categories, what we call the Mahi and the Ubu. The people themselves are so much conscious of this division, so that they have a term they refer to as um, the Mahi-Ubu dichotomy. Because the, that dichotomy dictates most of the things they do locally. It informs most of the local politics, because there is what we call the differentiation along this category. Unfortunately, there is this bifurcation of this local government again along oil producing area and non-oil producing area. And the two divisions now correspond with um, the Mahi and the Ugo section, setting a kind of agenda for a kind of contest and competition for the oil identity. It's a fairly large, um, I think, fairly populated um, subgroup, uh, over 300,000 um, by 2006 um, census. I don't think any other census has been conducted um, since that um, period. At a particular meeting, I raised the issue. So it's a very small place. I told the person it's not a small place because we have some countries that are not up to 300,000 in population. So the area we are dealing with is... Um, an area that at least uh, equipped a country in some climate. I know of San Marino, it's not up to 300,000 in population. So, and then in terms of the local economy, is we are dealing with a river Rhine area, and the local economy is built around uh, the fishing occupation of the people. That is the major source of livelihood for many people until the advent of um, development intervention. After intervention, a lot of things happen regarding this uh, local economy. I'm going to show you, the, this is the coastal terrain. Maybe in case, um, before we think of imagining what I'm talking about, you see a complete river Rhine area. We have um, a source of um, uh, water. People just have to uh, look for 
drinkable water all around, and the kind of houses built along the coastal line. And my feedback experience, I'm going to just say just a little bit about it. The first one has to do with um, uh, the challenge I had about um, studying a group that I know so much about, not just know so much about them, try being a part of that group. Although I didn't really live among them uh, uh, for the bigger period of my life, but the fact that I have my kind of origin within that um, area actually uh, uh, implicated me within the process I was uh, studying because um, the kind of local politics I was talking about uh, was also extended to my research because um, I have um, to be seen as belonging to one of uh, the groups and therefore having a, a kind of vested uh, interest in the research. So I have to do a, do a lot of reflexivity in my research and I have to allay a lot of um, uh, fears about being uh, partial in the way I see things I report. Uh, the difficulties in um, data collection is also another one. Uh, the monetization of uh, information uh, is a common practice. When you approach people for interview and others, they have to ask you for money. And when you try to explain um, that it's a research, uh, it's a student, said, you are doing it to also enhance your own ability to uh, earn. So you have to pay for whatever you are going to get from them. There was this even very terrible story that um, I have to relate at a point in time, conducting an interview with somebody, and he decided to time after, maybe saying you should just give something a token. He timed the interview, and at a particular point, decided to stop. I said, okay, let's continue. He said, the money you paid is uh, <laughs> finished. Uh, and you have to... <laughs> You have to pay another amount to continue from it. Yeah, so it's a big uh, challenge having information and data monetized. And then um, a lot of bureaucratic and bottlenecks introduced when trying to get source data from uh, some of these agencies. And they are very, very much um, conscious of the fact that uh, information can be used against them because they are involved in a kind of, in so many practices that have been contested at the level of, um, at the, within the public space and even litigated. So they are not willing to release some of the data of what they are doing outside. And then um, the difficult nature of the coastal terrain I have shown you, uh, that should not be a difficult, uh, something a big deal. Uh, whatever, as an anthropologist, we're going to do, you must cope with some of these terrain problems. Now, moving to the segment of um, the contestations and negotiation. Moving to the terrain of the kind of discourse that um, was actually introduced about development intervention, because we have to be very clear about it. The local people are not so much interested um, in uh, development intervention as implementation of physical infrastructure. They are more interested in development intervention in relation to what they could get from it. So development intervention was mainly embedded within what we call uh, entitlement and disentitlement, the notion of who gets what and who is entitled to what. So 
we have a wide range of local actors that refer to us and the stakeholders. The stakeholders extend from um, the political leaders of the intervention agencies because they are indigents of um, the oil producing communities. The stakeholders include the community leaders, include the local politicians, include the militant youth groups, include the employees of um, the agencies because the employees were also recruited from the communities, and women leaders. So we have so many stakeholders, people that are interested in what is happening. And these stakeholders construct their own arguments on development intervention in relation to what rightly belongs to them or who should be included in the process of um, benefit and who should be excluded from it. Taking the stakeholders approach and following it into the way intervention projects are implemented, we can identify two types of projects. We have what they call the small-scale projects and the large-scale projects. The small-scale projects are the projects that um, people believe the local contractors can implement. For instance, the construction of school buildings, the construction of foot bridges, the construction of health centers. This take the same pattern that um, the construction of the people's houses take. So there is this feeling that the local contractors could implement this, and they are left to handle this. And then we have what they call the large-scale projects, like roads construction, like sand filling projects, like redredging of the canal. They have to engage established contractors, and in most cases, many of them are expatriates and particularly Chinese, handle most of these roads projects. So, since the infrastructure, or what we call the development intervention, is focused towards infrastructure development and human development, it is expected, according to them, that a lot of people should benefit. And benefit here has to do with allocation of um, resources from implementation of intervention projects. And one of the unique ways introduced by the intervention agencies, what we refer to as a grouping. This is one of um, the, it, I think it was in that area I first of all heard about uh, the discourse of grouping for the purpose of implementing projects. What is grouping? Grouping simply means constituting stakeholders into different groups for the purpose of awarding um, state contracts to them. In which case, the local stakeholders, because they, each of them could not get a single contract, they have to be brought together as a group and they have projects given to them. So many of them did not participate either in the whole process of implementing the project, but when the proceed from implementation comes, they have to share the proceed among all members of that group. The logic is that 
for the purpose of ensuring that the benefit of intervention extends to everybody, grouping must be done. And this has a kind of effect, something close to what we call the unintended consequences that we are going to discuss later. And then, apart from the local or the small-scale project, the big-time contractors are also uh, uh, impressed was impressed upon them to ensure that they set aside a fraction of their resources to also settle the stakeholders. Settle the stakeholders means just having some of those um, uh, as a, a part of their um, uh, resources given out, dash out as a kind of patronage to the stakeholders. What can we say influence this kind of approach? Is it, is it really a genuine effort to ensure that everybody gets a fair share? In the process of examining how this one I played out, I found out that it, is, it was always during election periods that these projects are awarded. It is always close to election periods that you have um, these um, stakeholders marched together in groups and then given some of these contracts. So we have a situation whereby intervention projects constitute uh, campaign issues. And to make it further interesting, we have scenario whereby NDDC as a state, a national initiative, is in the hand of one political party, the national party, and then the state government is also governed by another political party. So we have the two intervention agencies representing two different um, political parties, thereby engaging development intervention agencies in the politics of um, uh, competing for the local votes. So while NDDC is rolling out projects to ensure that um, so many uh, local politicians are aligned on its own side, we also have Osubadek too, rolling its projects out to ensure that the political party at the level of the state also win the next election. So the agencies are implicated in politics very well. The essence of those projects are clear. We know the patronage literature and then um, we're also very sure that um, it's a way of competing for votes. I'm going to quickly show some of this. This is a picture that is on the poster. I have um, some of them that are a few of the projects. This is a, a house um, unit constructed. Uh, in contrast, we have um, the uh, office complex of the intervention uh, agency. It's really in contrast to what we have as the house and projects and the office complex of the inter intervention agency, really indicating where the money really is. This is a rural electrification uh, project, uh, the transmitter just installed. This is a market. But strangely, you will find out that uh, the entire area is uh, bushy indicating that uh, actually we have um, 
the structures con uh, constructed, but I don't think there is any activity close to market taking place uh, around this uh, place. The market stores in the bushy area, but definitely some people uh, constructed the markets and I think they smiled to the banks. <laughs> this is one of the commonest um, projects of intervention agencies. Uh, it's um, a kind of boardwalks built on, constructed on stilts, used to facilitate movement around that swampy terrain. So we have it uh, network around a village to make a movement from one place to the other uh, easy. So this is the kind of commonest projects you have in every community. It's called, they call it foot bridges. So especially during election, uh, the agencies must bring out foot bridges. So the foot bridges are actually very necessary when election is very near here. One of the remarkable projects um, implemented by the intervention agency was to link the coastal area by road to the local government headquarters. And this involved construction of um, so many bridges. This is one of the bridges that they constructed because um, during this era of intervention, for the first time, you have um, the coast, some communities along the coastline becoming accessible by road. Before then, transportation in the area is entirely by water. Now we have uh, a road lake in the area. And then comes an ambitious project, the creation of a new town. Because many communities in the intervention area, or what we call supposed to be the oil communities, believe that the area was not just, or cannot just be developed because of the unique terrain, was a muddy coastline. Concrete uh, buildings cannot be constructed. So they decided that they were going to sand fill a large swampy portion and set up a new community where all of them can see as um, a kind of community for all of them. So this portion was sand filled to have for the objective of creating a new settlement. So this was at the point when the sand filling was uh, going on, you could see the pipe that brought uh, the sand to sand fill this place. And after the sand fill, this is what we have. Uh, even when uh, settlement have not started developing there, we have the electrification uh, project already put um, in place. And currently, I don't think anything is happening because nobody can under the mechanism of allocating the plot of uh, land to people, I think it's not just uh, in place, but this was one of the ambitious projects of the agencies. So, moving away from um, the aspect of physical infrastructure to the kind of discourse that we had during that point, the first thing we have to notice is the different levels of contestations that were associated with um, intervention. The first one was the oil producing communities versus the non-oil producing communities. 
is a very big issue among the local people because um, uh, some section of the area have associated themselves with oil producing status and now believe that all the benefits must solely come to them. Whereas the aspect or the area that are designated or believed to be non-oil producing are all of protest that this is not an identity that you can hold on to. Most especially that um, the bulk of oil that is exploited in the area is not an onshore oil. It's a body of oil located in the Atlantic Ocean. How come all of us along the coastline, you can designate a section of it as oil producing and the other segment as non-oil producing? How come oil decide to create an artificial boundary between a contiguous uh, area? So that is a big discourse. And the political leaders were very, very much involved in this discourse because uh, that oil identity was a kind of empowerment. Because appointment to agencies associated with oil producing are only for those communities that are recognized as oil producing communities. So it became a tool of the local politicians to ensure that power is retained in them. And then beyond that level of um, identity bifurcation, we also have the stakeholders versus the non-stakeholders. The Stakeholders Forum is a large forum that is usually constituted to discuss the issue of how projects will be implemented and who is going to benefit. And you have the groups of identified, community leaders, local politicians, some young men that have been seen as having violent tendencies that can actually disrupt the whole arrangement. They are incorporated into stakeholders. So the non-stakeholders are like you're saying, then what is for us if development intervention or the gains of intervention is about the stakeholders? Then the, last, the next level is about the discourse that is raging in Nigeria now, what they call the discourse of stomach infrastructure versus um, uh, physical infrastructure. Which one is more uh, appropriate as development intervention? Is it the stomach infrastructure or is it the physical infrastructure? There are arguments that it is useless when you pave the roads without paving the stomach. And the way to pave the stomach is to ensure that uh, the resources move uh, around. A particular informant was very, very instructive in his own criticism of physical infrastructure. He told me, when I tried to tell him about, look at the road. The road is very beautiful. He said, what's my business about the road? What's the importance of the road to me if there is a road and I cannot have money to buy a car to ride on that Route. So his own definition of, the, of development is actually participating in the whole process of um, patronage distribution. And then we have the contractors and the local communities. The contractors don't always have it so easy with the local communities because the local communities 
do not actually connect with some of the projects they are implementing or that are being implemented. They don't, they see those projects as probably extraneous of their lives and are only interested in what it can fetch them. So the first thing they do when a contractor comes to a village to declare that he's to implement a project, the villagers ask, where is your contract papers? They want to see the contract papers to know the value of that contract so that they know how to negotiate the percentage they are going to collect from the contractor. And when I investigated further, I realized that some of the claims they make are not illegitimate. And why are they not illegitimate? It's found out that even the intervention agencies have incorporated the demand of the local people into uh, the contract sum. And it goes by a heading they call public relations. So the local people want to know the amount that has been set aside for public relations, PR. And the PR sub is just what they want to collect from the contractors. But the contractors themselves see the PR sub as part of their contract sub, and they don't really want to reveal that amount to the villagers. So there's always a running battle. They are going to frustrate the implementation of the project if the contractor is not going to part with that sub. So when you see local people frustrating the implementation of a so-called development project, it goes a long way to tell you about the kind of connection they have to that project because in actual fact, they don't see it in terms of development to them, but in terms of somebody just constructing something to get an amount of um, fun out of it. I just need to give out this, uh, this little uh, comment by one of the expatriate contractors who, in his frustration, had them um, to voice out what he saw as um, the kind of um, uh, difficulty in implementing a project. Particularly, this was a Chinese contractor constructing a road, and then all of a sudden, the project stopped. Nothing was happening again. And then someone accosted him and tried to ask him, what's happened to our road? Why are you not working again? And the man in his um, pidgin English voice this one out that KBAC collect money, youths collect money, women collect money, money finish. So, just like, just like nothing, the entire money I collected for the route has gone into settling the people. So, there is no really money left to continue with uh, the project. So, it's a kind of um, uh, reflection on what is happening. So, how are these uh, kind of conflicts negotiated? among the people. Because for one, we still find out that even among the contestations, people still, the projects are still being implemented. One is the Elijah identity, which we call the Omuru identity. The Omuru identity is an identity that link up all the segments of the Elijah. So whenever this conflict over oil producing and non-oil producing comes up, we have um, some of the political leaders try to mediate the process 
by trying to appeal to everybody that after all they are just uh, one and that has really helped in um, ensuring that the projects are implemented and then the political solutions which has to do with sharing of offices among um, the segments to ensure that everybody is represented and the extensive distribution of patronage ensuring that whenever anybody is trying to protest or to try to create problem the person is incorporated into the uh, patronage uh, system so that uh, he will at least temporarily be silenced and then this stakeholders forum is um, um, enlarged to encompass some of the youth that has, can be very very resty because one of the ways of ensuring you are part of the distribution system is to have the violent tendency and when you have the violent tendency you can disrupt the meetings of um, the stakeholders they are quite conscious of the fact that no, nothing must be known so that kind of person is brought into the patronage system and it becomes one of the stake 